Hi, everybody. Welcome. If you follow me on social media, you probably know that I'm a little bit of an FDR nut. I uh, quote him a lot on Twitter and so forth. I've been reading biographies about him. I've always been fascinated not only by him, but by his wife, Eleanor. So I'm very excited today to have an opportunity to speak to a great scholar, uh, a real expert on, on Franklin Roosevelt and on his presidency. Harvey Kay is Professor Emeritus of Democracy and Justice at the University of Wisconsin at Green Bay. He is a labor unionist and historical and political commentator and a frequent guest on progressive shows in every medium. He has authored and edited 18 books, including Thomas Paine and The Promise of America. I hope to have him come back another time and talk about Thomas Paine. Um, and The Promise of America, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, Freedom of Religion, Freedom of Speech, Freedom from Want, and Freedom from Fear. Those were the four freedoms that FDR talked about. Take Hold of Our History, that's the subtitle for the fight for four freedoms, and FDR on Democracy, this book right here. Uh, let's get right to it. What an honor. Meet Professor Harvey Kay. Harvey Kay, thank you. Thank you so much for being with me. I'm really excited about this conversation. I bet I'm more excited than you are. Oh, that's so kind of you. Well, I have, um, first of all, I want to tell you about my father a little bit. Um, when I was growing up, no matter what election uh, there ever was, and he died in 1995, if you ever asked my father, who'd you vote for, Daddy? He'd say, Roosevelt. So I was raised with a uh, great uh, love of Roosevelt. Um, you know, it was part of the stories of my growing up, uh, the things that he had done for the country and for my father specifically, his having uh, grown up in poverty and so forth. But as I have grown older and as I have gone through the challenges of my own generation, uh, history has mattered more and more to me uh, for the ways that it informs. And I've had a long uh, fascination with the founders and it's almost like every year every era of my life there's a there's a figure in history that I become almost obsessed with and uh, recently in the last few years it's been FDR um, I've been reading a lot particularly uh, more about Eleanor than I ever have before so I'm fascinated to hear from you who are truly a scholar a historian uh, an expert on the man and, and the president um, and what the, the years of Roosevelt's presidency and the New Deal meant to us. Um, so why don't we start there? Why now? Why is it uh, that to you and to me and so many of us, Roosevelt has such resonance right now? What did he do that was so important for his time and what does the philosophy, the political philosophy and act and behavior that he represented, what is its relevance for our time? Okay, that takes a lot to answer, it's not, but I'll try my best not to be forever speaking. Uh, but I do wanna pre I wanna respond to something you said as you led to the question. You said, you know, why now? What is it that resonates? And, and this is something that when I worked on my Thomas Paine book and it, and it then came pretty obviously to me, when I was working on my Franklin Roosevelt Four Freedoms book, and it also then continued as I worked on these speeches in the book you held up. Here's the thing. We know that Americans are not good at remembering history. Okay? In other words, you, you, you go out on the street and you ask them to remember this or that, and they won't exactly remember. 
But that doesn't mean they that doesn't mean they don't carry with them a kind of, for lack of a better way of putting it, sort of a deep cultural memory, and it's linked to what it means to be an American, I think. And and what I, what I discovered in the course, again, of the, my Thomas Paine work, which literally retells the entire American story in terms of that legacy, and then this more recent work on Roosevelt and the Greatest Generation, since, obviously, the 30s, what I, what I found is that during moments of real crisis in America, I mean, let's call them mortal crises, because I don't think there's any doubt that we have a story of America that has seen mortal crises, that at those moments, and this is important, at those moments, somehow Americans found it in themselves to actually do what some people might, might like to call the progressive thing, and I generally will call the radical thing. They literally, despite themselves, despite all their faults and failings, and the faults and failings of their leaders, they will carry out and, and pursue radical democratic action. It goes back to the revolution, goes back to the Civil War, and thus, it's like this... It's like it becomes almost an instinctive thing to Americans that when they face crises, they know they should look back. Okay, look back. So, for example, in the 1990s, where, where this whole, in many ways, this crisis has been going on for 45 years. But in the 1990s, there emerged, first of all, what was called founding father's fever or founder chic. And, and too often, the pundits... The historians and others generally made light of it or treated it as a mass culture phenomenon of a fairly, you know, fun kind of thing. But when you think about it, despite what we may think of the 90s, there were seriously deep crises in the wake of Ronald Reagan and George Bush I's tenure as president. And what Americans were doing is they were wondering, they were asking themselves, well, what does it mean to be an American? What do, what do we need to do? And as a consequence, <clears throat> thus emerged this founding father chic. Similarly, and the two seem to sort of be, you know, running in tandem, there began this fascination for FDR and all the more the greatest generation. Now, no, no less than what happened with the founders stuff, a lot of it became commercialized and a lot of what developed in the books and the films, etc., left out truly fundamental things about the 30s, the 40s, and in fact, the lifetime of your father and my father, okay? So for example, and I promise you I will get to the punchline in this, in this. What, what, we, what they left out, whether they were, the conservatives just sought to either lambaste or suppress the story of the 30s and 40s and basically reduce it to the undeniable heroism of a generation in the face of fascism. That should never be denied and never undervalued. But what they left out is that in order to enable themselves to confront fascism, they first transformed the United States in the 1930s. Not as much as our generation might have liked, but they definitely radically transformed America. They changed the relationship between government and working people. They empowered working people. They empowered themselves along with their president, enabling that through legislation. So basically a whole series of developments occur and we can talk about those later. And <clears throat> our parents' generation, again, for all of their faults and failings, they actually carried with them a certain understanding of what it meant to be an American. And so when we, when we confront 
a cr- look, we are in the face of a moral crisis. I, I mean, I, we all go about our daily lives. At times, we even can utterly forget the crisis we're confronting. But this coming November's election is probably the most consequential midterm election that I have ever seen coming up. And it's going to transform the country in a decidedly, I hesitate to use the word evil too readily, but in a decidedly evil fashion, or it may well enable us to survive to try to do the right thing in the wake of it. So I think what it is, is that when people are asking themselves, well, what are we going to do? I mean, we obviously are not living through a new FDR administration right now. It's not like they're reminded of that. But I will remind everyone, if, if especially those who might not have been old enough to know, back in 2008, when Barack Obama was running for president, and I could show you, I found the pile of these magazines the other day, every major magazine, especially the politically oriented ones, whether they were the whether it was the Nation on the on the on the left or the National Review on the right, they had the image of Roosevelt sort of, or they transformed Obama into Roosevelt. Now, that was a reflection of the fact that those, those magazines knew that there was a deep yearning for that kind of, not just experience, but for that kind of action. A president and a generation mobilized to redeem the American promise. And so, in some ways... Even if, even if the schooling that people receive about Roosevelt and the New Deal is, is not what it should be, decidedly not what it should be, it's sure as hell a reminder that the way things are is not the way they have to be. And there was a generation, and there were generations that somehow grabbed hold of that, of that deep memory and literally... I, I don't want to, yeah, rose up, you might say, to confront the challenge. Sorry, and that, I think that's what, I think those are the kinds of things that are happening right now. But of course, for too many years, for too many years, the right has done everything it could to suppress the memory, and in fact, to attack the memory of FDR and the, and the New Deal. And liberals have run from it at the same time. There has been Take me back to the Bernie Sanders campaign as we talk, okay? And I'll show you what I mean. Even the most progressive of candidates, by the way, did not do that. And for what it's worth, and I want people to hear me say this, I read your book, Love and Politics. I read it. And what really struck me, I mean, it it actually, to be honest, it utterly surprised me, okay, that you had a firmer sense of this story and narrative that I'm referring to than any other Democratic candidate of those years that came out in 2019, I believe. I mean, it was a, it, I was really amazed, and I'm willing to go on record saying that as I'm doing now. Thank you. Thank you. I do appreciate your saying that. Uh, there's a whole conversation there, but uh, we don't really need to go into yeah, well, that. I'm going to tell you something, and I mean this sincerely. Mm-hmm. I, in the notes I sent to you today, I said to you, we should have one in which I interview you. I would love about that. Would... that narrative that I found in that, in that. But maybe we'll get to it here. Yeah, that would be an honor. Uh, I'll send you uh, the earlier book that I'd written called Healing the Soul of America, where mm-hmm. I had gone further into the historical. No so kidding, I want to really, no I want to say three things in response to um, the marvelous uh, 
uh, things that you just said. First of all, you were talking about the radicalism, that Americans are capable of taking radical action. And of course, one of the lines that you have quoted and that others have quoted is um, Roosevelt having said, it has become clear to me that we must become fairly radical for at least a generation. Yeah. Um, I think that that word, of course, the root Radical means of the core, at the core, get to the core of things. But people sometimes are afraid of that word. Uh, but you're right. When things have come to a point of crisis, including s such as the one we're in now, the word radical should be seen in a far uh, broader context than um, some stereotypical narrative regarding violence or something yeah, like that. And on that, that note, I, you, won't, I won't go into it much, but I do want to say, mm -hmm. when you and I were... Sorry, I'm revealing that we're of similar ages. Um <laughs> When we were growing up, there was a really good word that referred to the radicalism of the right. And I've tried my best to get people to use it again, but it's very hard. The word was reactionary. Mm. And people just don't use that mm -hmm. these days. And it's mm -hmm. a shame because it literally, it enables people such as in 2016, 15, Claire McCaskill to say Trump and Bernie were two extremists, you know, oh. they were two, the two radicals, that kind of thing. It literally... Uh, the phrase, you know, how dare she... The, yeah. Yeah, the, the phrase, how dare she, comes up for me, but let, let's move on. Okay. Um, then the second thing that I wanted to point out about what you were saying was you said Americans aren't good at remembering. And I'd like to suggest that that has more to do with us than it has to do with past generations, who I think were better at remembering. Um, the Gettysburg Address, four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. The, when he was talking about that and what that meant and that it was a nation conceived in liberty, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, that that was why they were on that great battlefield. That meant something to people. That wasn't highfalutin language. Yeah. He was really talking to where people were at and under, their understanding that this was the justification for the Civil War. You know, we live at a time, and I'm sure you're aware of this yourself, obviously, as a former professor and so forth, we have 11 states in this country that don't even require, in grade school, don't even require half a year of learning about American history, American civics, American governance. So when you say Americans aren't good at remembering, how can you expect people to be horrified at the assaults on the Bill of Rights when they weren't even taught in school what the Bill of Rights even means? And when all they hear about is the Second Amendment, right? So... <laughs> I think a lot of it has to do with the failure of the American educational system, but even that, I think, has to do with the forces that you're talking about, which would prefer that people forget, that would prefer that people lose the through line. And if we lose that through line, and you probably read it in my book because I think I talked about it in that one, if these first principles and these great constitutional uh, factors that make our entire history hold together and make sense to some extent, if they're only uh, written uh, on you know parchment or on stone walls, but they're not imbibed by every generation, then we do, we lose the plot. And that's, it seems to me, what's to be so dangerous now. The other thing I want to talk about is Barack Obama, because I do think it's my experience, Harvey, talking to audiences as much as I have over the last few years. I do, and I think you and I would definitely agree with this, Amer about this. Americans have an instinctive understanding that America matters. And when we, when we elected Barack Obama, he had tapped into and harnessed for his own political purposes a profound yearning 
on the part of Americans who knew we needed to self-correct. That, to be honest, is why I resent him so much. Because yeah. oh, what he failed to understand is I, as I see it, but correct me if I'm wrong. One of the things when I've been reading about, uh, about um, Franklin and Eleanor, they understood that democracy better do its job or people would go to fascism or communism. Yeah. And they said that we don't have to worry about fascism or communism as long as democracy, democracy does its job providing for the people. And that if democracy does not provide for, for the people, then the people will look elsewhere. And so to me, the Obama years were a great, um, a, a tragic failure to give people the sense of hope based not just on sloganeering, uh, but based on policies that made a difference in their lives. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I, I wrote pieces about the fact, and I'll, I'll bring it right into my own classroom back when I was teaching in 2008. I only gave it up a couple of years ago because of the pandemic. My students, and this was across the board, my students were absolutely thrilled at the prospect of Barack Obama becoming president. They I worked for his, for his election. They were ready. They were ready to make real those three words, yes, we can. It That's really right. tapped into it. And then it was as if, like as soon as he entered the White House, it just utterly disappeared. Okay, right. utterly disappeared. And I'll tell you, and I'll give you an example. Of what I mean, undeniably pursuing an improvement in, the, in American healthcare law was to be welcomed, but not that law, period, okay? Not yeah. that law. But even worse is that there was a bill that was ready to go. He had 60 votes in the Senate at that time, and if he couldn't, if he couldn't make sure all 60 went with him, he could have figured out how to twist their arms. Or, I mean, as a young guy, he should have been able to figure it out. The, the, the Employee Free Choice Act, okay, that would have empowered workers to secure collective bargaining rights by way of unions much more readily than the current status of labor law. I mean, it, was, it would have transformed the workplace in that sense. And he just left it to the wayside, probably imagining, well, I want to get this healthcare thing through. And on top of that, he made the healthcare plan itself hang on negotiations with two U.S. senators from Maine, as I recall, probably thinking, well, I guess the big problem the Clintons had with healthcare is that they created a private health care commission back in the 90s, and they were negotiating with nobody. But neither the Clintons in the 90s, nor Obama and his team after 2009 when he took office, ever considered the possibility that maybe, just maybe, they ought to mobilize Americans behind the idea of some kind of new national health care plan, okay? So that, and then, and I'm going to tell you, I'll just jump ahead. And I'm sorry if I'm jumping ahead, but Joe Biden, when he entered the White House, undeniably, Americans needed the American Rescue Plan. It was, for a brief while, the, it looked like this might be a new New Deal moment, right? But actually, if you think about it, what would have been really smart and very FDR, along with Robert Wagner and the senators who propelled FDR inside of <clears throat> Washington, would have been good if he put right up on top of his agenda, voting rights and the PRO Act, right? Yeah. In other words, get Americans engaged. Raise pe Don't just raise people's hopes, literally raise their, their, 
speak to their anxieties, engage their energies. That's what FDR knew how to do. And that's what the Democrats really haven't done since, well, maybe since FDR, as a matter of fact. Well, as you said, during the 2008 election, the fervor was there. You were talking about your own students. He did harness uh, all of that energy, all that inspired activism in order to get elected. But it was, as a friend of mine who was at his inauguration once said, she told me, I felt almost like being at the inauguration, being in the crowd, it was almost as though he was saying, thank you, you're dismissed. Because as has been spoken about by so many people, he didn't continue to harness that energy in service uh, to uh, effectuating the very things that people were so excited about during yeah, the campaign. You know, when I, to speak of that, because that was a, a remarkable moment, the inauguration yeah. itself. Mm-hmm. And I, what I did is I was watching, oddly enough, I was in D.C., but I was watching on TV. Mm-hmm. And I asked myself, what does it look like from his vantage point? There were two million Americans, think of this image, two million Americans in all of their diversity. out there on the National Mall, Mm -hmm. just spread about everywhere, Mm -hmm. you know, climbing, clambering on the National Monuments. Even as he's speaking, he could see Americans probably off in the distance at the Lincoln, at the World War II Memorial. In other words, they were there. And in many ways, they were physically embracing American history, not only because this was the first African-American president, but also because they're physically embracing the story of America represented by those monuments. And I thought, I kept thinking to myself, surely that's got to, that's got to matter to him. And it may well have at that moment, but he just, I, the problem with Democrats, I'll be blunt about it, is I don't think they trust their fellow citizens. There you go. Yeah. And the punchline here that matters most is that all of that, that failure paved the way to Donald Trump. That's that's yeah, why this that's all right. matters so much. Yeah. I want to go back, though, to FDR. Yes, because please, I'm sorry I want, take us away. Uh, there's nothing to apologize for. It's all fantastic. And you and I could talk for many hours, and I hope uh, in time that we will. But I, I agree with you about this historical context being so important. Because you had Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt, Roosevelt's uncle, FDR's uncle, who brought in a new period of progressivism in reaction, radically in reaction to the Gilded Age. Give people who might not know the history, uh, give us a little thumbnail sketch of where America was, why the Depression, what Hoover represented, and what FDR meant to people. He said, I'm going to go into that horror where, what, a quarter of Americans were unemployed? At, that's uh, at the least. Yeah. Yeah. At the least, because if you said, think about African-American unemployment, probably was 50 percent. Right. And, and I also want to say, um, before we even go any further to those of you who are watching, uh, Harvey, you're Jewish, aren't you? Yes. I'm Jewish. Um, we get that Roosevelt had his weaknesses and his shadows. Oh, please. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we get that he denied entrance to thousands of Jewish children who might have been able to escape Hitler. We get that he created the Japanese internment camps. We get that he uh, perpetrated or certainly did not, certainly acquiesced to systems of segregation, not only in the military. He would not uh, proactively try to uh, uh, support the lynching law, anti-lynching law. So... We're going to be talking a lot about how wonderful uh, FDR was, but I just want to say that caveat before we even begin. Nobody here is saying he didn't have his have his uh, flaws, uh, both politically as well as personally. Having okay, said sorry, that, let me add yeah, one note on. to that. 
one note. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I may have said this to you in a text over the past couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. What is fascinating, and this is what makes American history so truly remarkable, is that those who might have had the least, the least to gain from so much of all of these endeavors refused to be left out. And yeah. they fought to be included. They were not going to be denied that they too were Americans. And I'll just lastly close. Uh, my closest friend for many, we were bu- buddies, and he was some years older than I am. He passed away a few years ago. He was born in one of those Japanese-American internment camps in Arkansas. While his father had, was serving in the U.S. Army, the Japanese-American family. And despite all of that, he would always say to me, there's just no question about what Roosevelt accomplished Maybe he felt he could say that because he also knew that Jews had been left out. But the point is that exactly. that's a, that, you know, it's important to realize that they would not be denied that they too were American. Okay, I'm gonna, I so, so I still want to go back for those who are not, you know, they know but they don't really know. So the United States was in a Great Depression. Uh, at least a quarter of the people unemployed. There had been the Great Crash, uh, 1929. He's elected in 1932. Oh, yeah. And he right. said to the people of the United States, what did he say? Give me a, a, a thumbnail. What did he say we're going to do about the, about the Depression? And what did he do? Okay, well, my, and this is unfortunate that so many historians fall into the habit of saying he really didn't know what he was going to do, which is wrong. He had yeah, been I governor of New York 1928, <clears throat> reelected 1930. While mm-hmm. he was governor of New York, he was already beginning what we might call a grand experiment uh-huh, to respond uh-huh. to the challenges of the New Deal. Kind of a so, microcosm. A- absolutely. So, absolutely. for example, he had public works. He was going to harness. He was going to harness the the St. Lawrence and the rivers up there, and he was going to create hydroelectric energy. He was going to put young New Yorkers to work planting trees in New York State. So, and, and by the way, the environment was fundamental always to FDR's vision. So what I'm getting at is he was already trying these things out. He was reminding workers in New York that, that he would do everything he could to defend and even advance their rights in the workplace. So when he ran for president, he actually, by, in the course of the spring of 1932, he laid out a f- pretty full-scale agenda. He didn't use the word social security. He used the word old age pensions. He talked about public works projects. He talked about enhancing education. He talked about, I mean, I could go on and on. And what's interesting is he recruited- But I want you to Francis- go on and on because too many people, hold on. Oh, I think there's okay, some sorry, young people yeah. who are listening right now particularly do go on because this is important that people know this was the beginning of social security he called it old age pensions which by the way everyone came from the socialist party um you you tell me the public works um even when people talk about the green new deal when he talked about the american conservation corps which created jobs for people working on the environment which of course was the precursor to the idea of the green new deal so i do want you to say what were these things he did that were so foundational and that are still so much a part of the popular imagination as we try to effectuate them in our own time yeah and and let's be clear about the fact that when he recruited his cabinet Mm -hmm. it it was an indicator as to what the priorities might well be and i'll use the two prime examples he recruited Frances Perkins, who he Labor. knew for many years in New York State. He, she was his industrial commissioner as when he was governor. And she 
was asked to become, in an unprecedented fashion, Secretary of Labor. And you can imagine what the old labor boys would think about a woman Secretary of Labor. Nevertheless, he recruited her. And she said to him, I'll do it, but we, we have to have a deal. I need your promise. High on the agenda will be Social Security. And he agreed. That's first. Similarly, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, She was the only person I read who was in his cabinet the entire time he was president. Uh, Actually, Harold Lickies was too. Oh, that makes sense. And and I'm and that's who I'm going to mention next. (laughs) Okay, the New Dealers they were called. All right, go on. Harold Lickies, Harold Mm -hmm. Lickies, fascinating figure, was a Republican. Once upon a time, as you probably know, there were progressive Republicans. Even when and we he were was, growing up, Nelson Rockefeller, Lowell Weicker. Jacob yeah. Javits, right? Yeah, I Jacob mean, there Javits, were those right. folks, right? right, right so right. He, he recruited Harold Ickes from Chicago, okay? Not be, just because he was a progressive Republican. He was, for a while in the 20s, the president of the, NC, ND, the NAACP chapter in Chicago, Wow. And he had a reputation of being the friend to Native American reservations. Wow. He brought, he brought him in. So these, are the, so these are the kinds of things. He had little doubt he was going to create a progressive administration. In fact, in 1926, I guess it was, he gave a speech up at Milton Academy in Boston. And he told the high schoolers there, these are prep schoolers, but high schoolers, he, he, he talked about the resistance to change. And he said, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that conservatives have, hold, have a hold on government longer than we liberals. They probably use that term. What, what's, what I fear, however, is that if conservatives hold on to government too long, that will jeopardize, that will threaten the American promise. And he feared that possibility. And later, while he's president, he gave a similar speech where he, he actually used the word fascism might well result if conservatives hold on too long. Well, yeah, so he was committed, determined to have a progressive, across the board, a progressive administration. Okay. Now, when he took office in the first hundred days, think about this, in the first hundred days, he got through a a banking act. He created the the Civilian Conservation Corps that you mentioned. They created the Public Works Administration, which would take time to get going because that was where they would issue contracts to do big projects, big public works projects. But what's also significant is he created the Agricultural Adjustment Act. He signed the Agricultural Adjustment Act and the National Industrial Recovery Act into law. Now, both of those would be found unconstitutional by a still conservative court in 1935. And I'll talk about that later if we have time. But here's the thing that people don't know about. They think, well, it's to help boost agriculture. It's to help get industry going again. There was no doubt that was the intention. But in both of those acts, encouraged by the progressive senators with whom he was close, who, by the way, included progressive Republicans and progressive Democrats, he, they built in, in the National Industrial Recovery Act, for example, collective bargaining rights for workers on the federal level. And when he signed it, and also the first federal minimum wage, and when he signed it into law, he said, you got to love this. I mean, why don't, why don't we hear people talk like this today who enter the White House? No company 
should because be allowed. Because people who talk like this aren't allowed to get to the White House. That's Let's be very clear about that. Absolutely. What, how could I be so naive? I apologize. Yeah, really? Thank you. <laughs> I know you okay. know better. All right, go I on. Should, you bet I should know better. He said, no company, I'm only slightly paraphrasing. I'm going to use his exact words as much as I can. No company should be allowed to exist in this country that does not pay a living wage. And what if Biden had said that instead of sitting back and watching the $15 an hour minimum wage die because eight Democratic senators blocked it, including the two from his home state of Den- Den- Denmark, listen to me, his home state of Delaware, one of whom was his own mentee, Chris Coons. I mean, well, you- that's sorry. Yeah. Go. <laughs> yeah, we're living at a time where the majority of Americans would need a 70% pay raise to be yeah. making a living wage. That's where we have come right. to today. Let's go back a little bit to uh, what you were talking about, his relationship to conservatives and to the whole concept of conservatism. Now, yeah. Eisenhower would later say that the American mind at its best is both liberal and conservative. The high-minded conservative uh, wants to, quote-unquote, conserve those things which are eternally true. The progressive and the liberal says, yes, but we have to apply these things to immediate circumstances. Roosevelt himself came out of a, of a social order. He was New Yorker. He was a Roosevelt, for God's sake. He was tall. He was dark. He was handsome. He had everything going for him. He was from those moneyed classes. He called them the economic royalists, right? Yes. Um, and he understood that they didn't want to just conserve those things which were eternally true. They wanted to conserve those things which were good only for them. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that was so fascinating to me in um, – all the the historical uh, knowledge about Roosevelt is the emotional and psychological effects that his getting polio had on him. Uh, He was a young man who had it all. And he's confronted by an unimaginable horror. You know, Eleanor would say that it taught him infinite patience and and perseverance. Uh, They worked for years hoping they would find a cure. It slowly... uh, uh, dawned on him at the deepest level. There would there would be no cure. He yeah. would never use his right. legs again. Um, but when he went down to Warm Springs, Georgia, mm. I'm so fascinated by what happened to him in terms of his heart cracking open in a way that was so necessary for him to be the man we needed him to be, bringing forth the New Deal. The people that he met in Warm Springs, Georgia, didn't know from Roosevelt. I mean, they knew that Teddy Roosevelt maybe had been president. They didn't know from the Gilded Age... Uh, Um, society that the Roosevelt's were born into. They didn't know about the fancy stuff. They just knew he was another sufferer like them. And they treated him that way. And I always felt when he went down to Georgia, it seemed so clear to me, Harvey, that he came into contact with people he would not necessarily ever have come into contact with unless they were his servants. And here there were the people that he needed, who he was depending on, who helped him. And I have always thought that that was, you know, it's just like Bobby Kennedy. It was the assassination of John that turned him into the Bobby Kennedy mm. that we knew. And it was, it, was, it was Roosevelt's polio that just cracked him open. Um, because otherwise it makes no sense why a Roosevelt would bring forth that kind of radical action on behalf of the working people of the United States. Yeah, you know... 1912, when he was first running, I think it was 12, I don't think it was 2000, I don't think it was 1910, it was 1912, when he first ran for major public office, uh, New York mm-hmm. State Senate and won, 
he gave some speeches that year that indicated that he was seriously struggling with what it would mean to be a progressive. He was kind of, he just he was struggling with it. He actually was he actually talked about the fact that well, if he stresses this too much, he talked out loud about this. He gave a talk at the People's Forum. He, if I do too much of this, they'll call me a socialist. If I do too much of that, they'll think I'm just another capitalist, basically, that kind of thing. And he coined a term, which is awkward as could be, liberty of the community, okay? But what he was really trying to get at was the imperative that there are public and human interests that should not be allowed to be trampled upon by corporate power and industrial titans, okay? That's clear what he's yearning to accomplish. And I can tell you that Frances Perkins, who knew him, she was convinced that what changed him was the polio. And I think it's the case that it was already in his mind. You know that in, during World War II, he was the assistant, during World War I, he was the assistant secretary of the Navy. And he was in charge of the, the war effort on the naval side. And during the, those years, he actually gave a speech in which he spoke of the 1% and the 99%. He did. Yeah, and so th this is a guy who, it was already in his mind, and after he lost, he was on the ticket in 1920 for the Democrats, after they lost because of the League of Nations question, that was pretty much mm -hmm. what yeah. cost him the election, he decided he was going to write a history of the United States. Because he said, he said, you know, all the history books are failing to, to get at the fact that Americans were going to go places right from the beginning. That's how he put it. And he was very much inspired by his two presidential heroes, his cousin, Teddy Roosevelt, who was a renowned writer of history and biography, and Woodrow Wilson, who was also a, had been a professor at Princeton University and later president. He wrote volumes of government and history, historical studies. So he wanted to do this because he wanted to follow in their footsteps. But he couldn't. He found that he could, he could write a speech he, but he couldn't write a book in that fashion. However, he, he literally, from that moment on, became more of a history teacher to Americans than any president ever. And well, you referred to the economic royalists. So here he is. And by the way, I can show you examples throughout his career. He's constantly, in, because he knew what Americans knew. He, somebody once said, FDR is successful in his speeches because he, he somehow knows what Americans need and want to hear, and in any case, yearn to hear. They want to hear what it means to be an American. And so when he does, gives this speech in 1936, accepting the renomination for president of the United States in Philadelphia, he had asked the platform committee to write up the, the platform as if it was a new declaration of independence. Then he went before 100,000 people in a sports stadium to give that speech. And he basically says, you know, in 1776, our ancestors fought against political royalism. And everyone there would have known exactly what he was talking about. In fact, he even said, we're in Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a good city to make history, as he put it. And then he goes on and he says, you know, today... We are enduring or suffering the rule of economic royalists in the marketplace, in the workplace. And then he gives his grip. This has got to be the grip, most radical line ever issued by a president. He said, you know, they complain that we want to overthrow American institutions. However, what they, they know and we know is that that's not the case. We want to overthrow their power. 
That's right. He called you it there, the forces of selfishness and lust for power. And he yeah. said when he was uh, making his speech for the second, um, uh, in his second campaign, he said, in my first administration, they met their match. <laughs> and of course, the difference between him, you know, you were talking about what progressives say this today. There are progressives who say it, progressives in power who say it, but lack the courage to actually do it. Yeah. Um, and and of he also course, warned when, that those folks are going to wrap themselves in the flag. Yeah. And he said, I welcome their hatred. I yeah, welcome I their hatred. <laughs> it's fascinating line. when you talk about his working through things. He uh, was very quiet about a lot of things until he had make, made his decision. There were a lot of things even Eleanor didn't know. Um, yeah. He would like work it through. But also when you were talking about how he became this way, how he became someone ready to take that radical action, ready to take on the hatred uh, of people, I think... Um, we shouldn't underestimate the role that Eleanor played. You know, when I was growing up, my mother would say, well, she went out there, he was in a wheelchair, she would be his hands and his eyes. But I think she also led him philosophically. I mean, even the line, uh, there's nothing fear to fear but fear itself. She was a religious woman. And so she had the biblical concept of the spirit of fear. And she would go back to him and say, there's a spirit of fear. There's a spirit of fear. So when you said a, a couple of minutes ago, he had this knowledge of what Americans wanted, she would go and experience. I mean, the people that she would invite to Hyde Park, the people that she would invite to the White House, you communists come over because we're going to talk. And you, so she would invite them all to the White House. I mean, she would bring to him the people the actual people. And yeah, people and would criticize her for meeting with all these people. Yeah, and she said, these right. are the Americans. Yeah, I definitely want to, I want to respond to that, but I want to respond to something just a bit earlier. Mm -hmm. You know, I, what I figured out, and I did this in consultation with a number of other people who aren't necessarily Roosevelt scholars, but people who knew sort of the family and all that kind of stuff. And what, what I came to believe is that, yeah, you know, as your mother told you, it was Eleanor, they would, when he would go out campaigning, he would sit in the back of an open-air car. It was Eleanor mm -hmm. who got out of the car and went into right, wherever right. they were. And she would bring back, mm -hmm. well, he would talk to people, but she would bring back mm -hmm. the inside story, you might say. That's right. But here's the other thing. As you know, and I know, she went out a lot on her own. She, I mean, she was a journalist. Absolutely. She had a column, right? And by, and she, by the way, and she joined the Newspaper Guild Labor Union. So that, and that she made money for those speeches, which blows my mind. Can you imagine? Well, people used the to first say lady to him, today was going out and getting paid for the talk. People used to say to him, can't you control your wife? And I think and he said And what they no. failed to consider is that she was his test, she was testing the waters for some of his very radical ideas. Okay. Well, And, and by the way, his, his answer, which is a classic, answer of those days was, can you control your wife? Uh, well, you know, I'm a woman, Harvey, so I'm no, no, fascinated. No, no, I said of no, those no, days. Hold on. No, 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 please don't get, you know. you, you're, you're projecting onto me. I'm responding. There was nothing wrong with that. Um, as a woman, I am fascinated by the triangle, the love triangle there. Um, Eleanor, Lucy Mercer, Roosevelt. Oh, yeah. um, I think it did take Eleanor years uh, to come to terms with mm -hmm. what he wanted her for yeah. and what he didn't want her for. Um, and um, I was reading just the other day about a secretary of his who would talk about, you know, I know in my relationship with my parents, right? I remember things that my mother could go, go so far. My father always called my mother sweetheart. But if she pushed too hard about something, he'd say, Sophianne. And that meant no more. And, Sorry, um, I'm, I'm, I can I'm imagine it's a this. generational thing. 
Uh, not just generational. I think I've been told no more a few times than myself, and it's not always wrong. But the, the phrase that I read about Eleanor and Franklin that was so fascinating to me is there were, quote, unquote, strange reticences between them. There was a place where people would expect him to say, Eleanor, you've gone too far, where he would let her continue. So there was a lot there, you know. It, it was a little bit of like what Joseph Kennedy and Jackie and, uh, you know, there, there was a lot there. So I find the whole Eleanor and Franklin story, every part of it, it's just so redolent with every kind of psychological and emotional and political yeah, and, you know and sexual. What? You know you know what? The, the more, the further left she went, the polls showed the more popular she became. She, she was like up in the 80% favorability ratings at the height of that, that radicalism, like in 1938 or so. I've got numbers around here somewhere. I'll, I'd have to pull them off my wall here. I mean, it really, really, it was astounding. The assumption, uh -huh. and by the way, one of the reasons Republicans became all the more determined to go after her as well as the Southern Democrats, the white supremacist Southern Democrats, is the fact that she, they must have known how popular she was becoming what a, and what a threat, because she aligned herself with Southern civil oh. rights activists. And Marian Anderson, when the, when the DAR wouldn't allow Marian Anderson to sing, she arranged for her to be able to sing at the Lincoln Memorial, and then right. she brought her to the White House, and um, just, uh, absolutely. She to his credit, the man who actually arranged that was Harold Ickes, Secretary of the Interior, because as Secretary of the Interior, he controlled the National Mall. And then his son uh, worked in the Clinton administration, didn't he? Yeah, no need to go there, right? <laughs> the different generations. Okay, so let's continue. Um, I think we've established the radicalism of the New Deal and what he opened up. Was he the first person, I know he would use the phrase social justice, but did that phrase originate with him? That I don't know, but but as you, as apparently you've looked through the FDR and Democracy book, after I believe it was after he had won the presidency, or is it just before the election? He gave uh, a speech. He gave a sermon, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, on a Sunday in Detroit, in which he really did emphasize his commitment to social justice. And again, we've already referred to the fact that he committed many a political and moral sin. The point is that that was decidedly a motivating factor in much of what he then pursued in the New Deal. I love this phrase. He said, in these days of difficulty, we Americans everywhere must and shall choose the path of social justice, the path of faith, the path of hope, and the path of love toward our fellow men. Um, we're talking about him on the domestic front, of course, and it's also true, as everyone knows, that he led the United States during World War II. He took on fascism. Uh, he was uh, deeply aware of the threat that Hitler posed long, long before Pearl Harbor, um, yes. but the isolationist uh, trend in the United States, particularly understandable given the debacle of World War One, that was Absolutely. only what you know, twenty-five years before right. or whatever. Um, but he he realized what was happening, and when it was necessary to take on Hitler uh, in the way he did, he certainly did. But I'm going to throw some quotes out, uh, all of which I'm sure that you know very well. But I'd like to know if there are any particular. And if I don't, I'm going to lie and say I do. No, you you'll know all of these. They're <laughs> the most famous ones of all. This one uh, I particularly love. It's his "I hate war." quote. Oh, yeah. I have seen war. Of course, 
uh, World War One. He was the uh, he was the uh, Undersecretary of the Navy, right? Yeah. Um, he said, "I hate war. I have seen war on land and sea. I have seen blood dripping from the wounded. I have seen the dead in the mud. I have seen cities destroyed. I have seen sit children starving." I have seen the agony of mothers and wives. I hate war. Yeah, he, Anything he actually you want to say had, about that? Well, I'll start off by saying during when, when the war began, he actually went to his uh, senior, well, the, the actual secretary of the Navy, Josephus Daniel, something like that, and to, and to Wilson and asked to be relieved of being assistant secretary of the Navy. He wanted to serve in the Navy. Now, partly yeah. it was ambition because he knew what his cousin, Teddy, had done during the Spanish-American War. He did not want to be left out. But it was also the case he really did believe that in the, in the imperative of, of, of halting a war and that only the United States could do that. But the other thing is, is that when he was over, he actually stayed on, but he then got permission to go to Europe at the end of the war to mm -hmm. see what had transpired. Mm -hmm. And when he made... Some people said, well, he never really served in the military. No. He, he was there. He saw what that was, you know, the, the ugliness, the, the, the murderousness, the butchering that that war entailed. And it, he was never, ever eager to go to war, even when he knew he had to do it. But he also knew at a certain point he had to do it. And for what it's worth, they knew well before. Sorry, are you going to quote it all from the Four Freedoms speech? Because I, I would take us there. He knew from intelligence, meaning, you know, service folk, that they were that Hitler's plan had already been drawn up as to what he was going to do in the Americas, okay, if opportunity afforded it. But he knew that he could not do certain things, as you were noting, the isolationist sentiment. However, there were surveys that, I've got a volume of these surveys, that showed that, when Americans were asked if the only way to stop Hitler was for the United States to enter the war, the numbers changed. In other words, you know, surveys can tell you one thing depending on how they're asked versus others. So in 1941, when he gave the, the freedom, well, the four freedoms speech in the State of the Union, that really is his own, in a way, his declaration of war. In other words, he's letting Americans know. He says in that speech, they will not tell us when they will attack us. So he called for the U.S. to become the arsenal of democracy. But knowing all of that and probably believing that Americans were Americans, is it's at that moment that he lays out the vision of the four freedoms. Freedom of speech and expression, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. And by the way, that speech, even though Americans later could not remember the exact words of the Four Freedoms, it's that speech that launched a series <clears throat> of decidedly American-like, not only war effort um, activities, but also led, for example, A. Philip Randolph to launch the March on Washington movement and demand black inclusion in the defense industries. So, Anyhow, I, I, well, I cut you freedom off. Freedom from want and freedom from fear is the basis for progressive economic policies. Absolutely. And today, yeah. as then, the staunch conservatives don't feel that the government 
does have a responsibility to free people from want or to free people from fear. And that's really what this is all about. If you have a, 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 a paradigm of the meritocracy, you think, well, if people can't make it, then hey, too bad, they, they didn't make it. But to actually lay claim to the vision unapologetically and unabashedly that it is a role of government to help people. You know, one of my favorite uh, quotes from Roosevelt is, the test of our progress is not whether we add more to the abundance of those who have much. It is whether we provide enough for those who have too little. Yeah. And today that's just, you know, uh, stereotyped as the weakling snowflake uh, um, bleeding heart liberal. But during Roosevelt's time and in a way that we need to reclaim, it is the essence of a progressive vision. Before we get off the... Well, I'm sorry, go on. 1936, when he's running again for president, he gave a speech to unveil a war memorial in St. Louis to honor those who fought in World War I. Mm -hmm. And the speech itself is a very, very surprising speech at a war memorial. He said, basically, I, I should have put these all next to me, Patriot patriotism is about making sure that more Americans get to enjoy what it means to be an American. And that's a paraphrasing. He meant not allowing social justices to prevail. Imagine that. He defined patriotism not... And this is at a war memorial unveiling. He defined it in terms of social justice. I so agree with him as well. Um, I want to talk about, and, and I think this is not just about Roosevelt. This, to me, I, I feel this from Eisenhower as well. One of the things that's most impressive to me about the two of them is that the two men who, on the American side, did more than anyone else to yeah. lead us through that war. Right. They were not giddy about war the way these youngins are today. Right. They were, they were serious and they hated war. That was what, and you got that from Eisenhower, just like you got that from uh, mm -hmm. Roosevelt. These yeah. men hated war. It gave them such a sobriety about war. And that's what is so scary about the neocons. That's what's so scary about the George Bushes of the war. They're almost giddy about it. They're a little too excited about it. It's, it's like little boys playing with big guns and um, looking to FDR and to the tenor, uh, their emotional tenor, that we're, we're gonna kill these people because we must. And there was nothing, uh, there, were, there was no smile in that whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, would you agree with what I just said? Yeah, and as a historical footnote in that vein, only because I, I know your father served in the Pacific. He did. My father served in, in Europe during the war. Um, it's notable that in 1932, when the bonus marchers were occupying Washington, demanding the monies that had been promised to them in, in a later year, saying, look, we need the monies you've promised us as a veteran's bonus now. And thousands upon thousands came from all over the country to occupy the National Mall and nearby grounds, that the figure who led the troops to surround the encampment was MacArthur. Really? And his, yes. And he ordered the attack on the veterans, which was, by the way, an integrated encampment, black and white. And by the way, and then to bring it back to the Europe side, and my father served in a tank under Patton, Patton was his lieutenant. Fascinating That's the, and it, Okay. And with Eisenhower... You know, my father never voted Republican, Let me, okay? But he would never say a bad word 
about Eisenhower. Oh, my father did. My father used to say, he used to say all the time that Eisenhower's most passionate moment about anything going wrong in America was, gee. <laughs> so my father and the would. And good for golf, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like golly. Like, gee, McCarthy, talking yeah. about you, McCarthy, you know, the McCarthy. My father era. reserved his, bad us, man. his hostility for Nixon. Yeah, yeah. All right, so... Um, Roosevelt, you know, one of the tragedies, obviously, of his death, and you've written and talked about this as well, is the plans that he had for the future. He was already talking about the, you know, what happened at the end of the war, right? Yeah. Uh, the Germans had surrendered, but the Japanese had not surrendered yet. He was already planning a post-World uh, War II America. He wrote this line for a Jefferson Day speech um, mm. that he did not live to give, but we have the line, and it is more than an end to war. We want to end to an end to the beginnings of all wars. I think that's so fascinating. I think that that he and uh, those around him were very aware that the Treaty of Versailles after World War One uh, gave us the seeds, uh, and there was so much about the way the world acted, the Allies acted after World War One yeah. that made it easier for the emergence of Hitler, etc. And he, whether it was the Marshall Plan. Um, so many of the ways that we treated uh, uh, treated uh, Japan, we treated Germany uh, after World War II came from this vision that he had that we need to get it right this time so that we're not just waiting for the next war. And of course, he, with, with Eleanor carrying on that legacy, being so involved with the founding yeah. of, the, of the United Nations, the first delegate to the UN, um, so even though he didn't live to effectuate that, he already was thinking in terms of the roots of the war and that we must address those roots. Once again, such a radical thinker. Yeah. When, when, even though he lost in the campaign of 1920, when he was the vice presidential uh, member of the ticket, he did not give up the idea of the League of Nations. It was always mm-hmm. a part of his thinking. Mm-hmm. And it's notable that when the war began... We always think of, well, we think about the Axis powers, Germany, Italy, Turkey, and, no, not Turkey, sorry, Germany, Italy, and Japan, and we think of the allies, right? Well, the term that he regularly used, even when he used the term allies, he would soon segue and call the allied nations the United Nations. This was early on. didn't realize Very early on. I mean, this was decidedly in his mind. Getting people used to the phrase. Yeah, right. Here's exactly. And then, oh, there was something else you said that, oh, well, anyhow, I mean, yeah. So I, I think that this vision and the, oh, I remember now when he, when he was, his speech writing team had drafted like several versions of the Four Freedom speech in 1941. And they, he and the team came together. He usually gave the team orders. Okay, well, directions, and they would come up with something. And he was known for writing the peroration, the lines that would be remembered. So they're sitting at night in the Oval Office. The secretary, his secretary, it was, I believe, possibly Robert Sherwood, the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright, Harry Hopkins, who really was with him ever since 1933. Um, and I'm forgetting the third, maybe, oh, Rosenman, his chief of staff. And they all remembered that at that moment where he's dictating this, the, the peroration, that he leans back, it's a silence in the room, and they're all feeling uneasy, and then he lays out the four freedoms. And Sherwood, I believe it was, turned to Hopkins and said, was he serious? Because every time he mentioned the four freedoms, he would finish 
with everywhere in the world. Freedom from want, everywhere in the world. Freedom from fear, everywhere in the world. And Sherwood, who, as I said, Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, (laughs) turned to, to Hopkins, who really was this remarkable figure all the way through the administration, and said, was he serious? You realize what that would imply? And he said, well, he's serious. The question is, can we do it? You know, it was always the question, can we get, get to do it? Um, so, yeah, I mean, again, I, let, anyone listening, if you didn't hear the first part of this, we are well aware of the faults and failings of this man. But he had a vision, a vision that he believed Americans might well embrace. And if you'll allow me, in 1944, when he offers the vision of an economic bill of rights, and this is the key thing about Roosevelt. He once said to a woman, a, a famous woman journalist whose name is escaping it right now back in the campaign of 32, I never want to be too far out in front of my fellow citizens when I speak. So he would always make sure. Wow. Okay. It isn't, it isn't that he didn't, it wasn't that he wouldn't be in front of them. He just didn't want to necessarily look like he had left them behind and he was sort of spinning things out of his head. And in 1943, late in 43, with the idea of 44 on the horizon, where it would be the continuation of the war effort and also another presidential campaign, he commissioned a, a national social research group headquartered at Princeton and asked them to ask Americans, without making this public yet, what do they want at the end of the war? Yeah, right. And he was, what he discovered was what he was hoping to discover, that yeah. they wanted, as somebody, as one of the pollsters wrote in a book, mandate from the people that Americans wanted everything. Every, they really did. They were they wanted, they wanted everything. everything. They wanted national health care, health care. They wanted they wanted to make sure that young people could get education as For far as, far as their abilities as, would take them. And 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 even though he was only able to get it as much as the GI Bill, which yeah, as right. we know did so much to create the prosperity at the end right. of the world of World War II, what he wanted was the response to the full desire yes. of the American people, which That's is right. free education for everybody. Yeah. Free college, free, free technical school. National health care. What they used to call universal health care. Okay. Education, housing. They they wanted, you name it, they wanted it. And by and the way, you would this have given like, it to them. This wasn't like Democrats wanted it, Republicans no. didn't. To, for example, the health care question, 83% said national health care, basically. That was 95% of Democrats, 75% of Republicans. The feeling was so overwhelming that even Thomas Dewey, who became the Republican candidate, had been, I guess, governor of New York, he was this close to embracing the idea of national health care. That's how close he, because he, he could sense what was coming out. And Roosevelt then in 44 actually lays out the idea, he said, look, We've come to the point in our history where we realize that needy people are not free people. You know, Harvey, I think Nixon actually mentioned universal health care, didn't he? I think Nixon. Yeah, in 1971, he actually proposed a version. And my, my understanding is that the Democrats thought it was a, a cheap, too cheaper version that they could do better, and they you failed know, to do so. The, the one of the greatest triumphs of the Koch brother inspired neocon far right in America today is which you see not only from Republicans but you even see from establishment Democrats now is people who are asking for what are traditional American 
principles articulated by such as Roosevelt, adequate housing, <laughs> a living wage, free health care, and college to take you as far as you can go. It's, what is it called today? We're the fringe left who want too much too fast. Um, this is why history is yeah. so important that you understand now we're asking what are traditional values. There's something I want to I wanna go to, though. One more quote. There's such fascination today, introduced, of course, by the, you know, Tucker Carlson's and so forth from the right, this fascination with the autocrats. So not only do we have these terrible autocrats like Orban, uh, like Erdogan, et cetera, who are uh, on the ascent, there is this popularity uh, here in the United States for the autocratic strongman, our own, of course, even, even Donald Trump. But when people were trying to present uh, previous to World War II, that maybe the Hitlers of the world or the Mussolinis or the Stalins, maybe they weren't really so bad. There was the same kind of thing going on then. This is yeah. a quote from him that I think is just divine. He says, those who seek to establish systems of government based on the regimentation of all human beings by a handful of individual rulers call this a new order. It is not new and it is not order. Yeah, you know, 20 different things popped into my head in response to that quote. One in which I got to tell you, um, the poet of the 30s, um, Stephen Spender, I guess it was, had said, fascism is not the wave of the future. He was saying that in response to Charles Lindbergh's wife, who wrote the book, The Wave of the Future. He said, democracy is the wave of the future. Democracy is the revolution. Now, that's, I just had to get that out. But... Yeah, and he's the, right, by the way, and it is a continuous revolution. Yeah, right, which FDR repeatedly said. In fact, what's interesting is I, I have up here on my shelf, you probably, people probably can't see it, I've got in hard copy all of the speeches of Frank and, uh, and writings of Franklin Roosevelt. And what's fascinating is how often he made just that point, that democracy, that democracy was an ever, how do you put it, a never-ending march. That's how I think he put it. And he said that repeatedly. And he also, obviously, he, he took presidential poetic license. He actually talked about the United States as a, as a revolutionary experience, not just at the age of the revolution, but ever after. And always wondered, could we, you know, could we? And he said, yes, we can live up to it. Sorry to, to steal from Obama. Yes, we can. But, but it, is that, it is the case. The, the, thing about, the thing about Roosevelt is that even those, as I said before, who seemed to have the least to gain from the situation that presented itself, whether they were, they were black or, you know, other folks who were living under the poverty line, which we think of today, is that when he spoke, they could hear a promise in, yeah. when he spoke that they were willing to respond to. They didn't just say, we're going to wait on a promise. They were willing to respond. So back in, back during the New Deal, millions of Americans became involved with their, by way of their labors in making the New Deal real. Similarly, similarly, in the course of the 1930s, and because we didn't really mention this, the labor movement expanded in the millions. And it wasn't just white workers, white male workers. It was white, black, Latino in vast numbers through the Southwest, women workers, I mean, it was it was just an amazing period. In fact, it was so, so, if you like, dynamic 
that the older labor movement of the American Federation of Labor didn't know how to respond to all this energy from below, which led to the creation of what we came to know as the CIO, the, the Congress of Industrial Organizations. This was, and they, they actually put out a poster in their organizing efforts. They wrote on it, if I were working in a factory, I'd join a labor union. And they signed it with FDR's name. Now people say, well, he never actually said that. But he knew it was there and he didn't ask it to be taken down. I think something similar is going on today. I think something very profound is going on with Christian Smalls, what's mm, happening at mm -hmm. Amazon, what's happening at Starbucks, a new generation that comes up rediscovering uh, the impulse of labor, the importance of labor, the necessity of labor for right. any kind of a balanced society. Something else I want to say uh, in regard to something, a comment you made earlier. You talked about how... Um, as a president, he was so knowledgeable of history and would use historical references um, in his talking to the American people. Another president who did that, of course, was JFK. Uh, JFK was very was very much a historian and and really contextualized a lot of his thinking, um, even in his in his speeches. Um, yeah, within um, his story. Yeah, and I, I, again, I, I'm always I, I'm not a big JFK fan, okay? And the reason is, after the war, in the late 1940s, there was a veterans group that was organized called the American Veterans Committee, which was a decidedly progressive veterans organization. And the membership, well, the leadership included such as, uh, well, one of Roosevelt's own sons, um, the, the man who would go on to an acting career having won the Congressional Medal of Honor, Audie Murphy, uh, Bill, Bill Malden, the cartoonist. Mm -hmm. I, strangely enough, I think Ronald Reagan was actually actively a member of that. Um, there were, and by the way, in 19, so now in 1960, in 1960, there were four veterans on the tickets, okay? It was Richard Nixon, and Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., I think, was behind uh, there. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, it was John F. Kennedy and LBJ, right? Now, the irony in all of that is that Henry Cabot Lodge, the Republican, was the only one who had been a member of the American, this progressive American Veterans Committee. But the other thing is, is that when JFK came back and his father promoted him to run for Congress, repeat, you know, JFK made it clear, he would tell people, I, he actually said, I am not a liberal. I did not join the American Veterans Committee. And then in 1960, the greatest obstacle to his winning the, the nomination was Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah, she didn't like him, but he went and he charmed her. He charmed he her charmed and he her. went to visit her and he apparently, you know, because she was a big Adlai Stevenson person. Absolutely, but he went which to would not have been my choice and either. And he charmed okay. her. Yeah. But, well, but here's, well let know. me just finish off because it's just one of these ironies you might say. The man who wrote, the man who was responsible for writing the 1960 Democratic Party platform had been himself in the Roosevelt administration, head of the Office of Price administration during the war. And he traveled the country to write up this this platform. And he modeled the entire platform after FDR's Economic Bill of Rights and blatantly indicates it in the platform. And in his memoir, he said, my only fear is that Kennedy would have rejected the platform. Now, Kennedy, once he became president, got pushed. 
he was pushed into into becoming more of a liberal than he might ever have expected himself to become. Well, I don't know. If Bobby Kennedy were here, he would say my brother was in transition, my brother was evolving. Um, I, I'm just the historian yeah. reporting what I know. Yeah, yeah. And he, and he also did some things that were pretty extraordinary. I mean, he was the one who sent the sent the troops down to Alabama. I mean, I think, if anything, to me, the profundity of history is that these were human beings. Um, but he had a good precedent, and you brought up the prior precedent in another president. And that is, for all of his conservatism, Eisenhower did use troops in, our, in Little Rock, Arkansas. Okay. In fact, a good line from, from Eisenhower, you'll want to remember this. Eisenhower was being courted to run either, either as a Democrat, a Democrat or, or a Republican. Republican. They both know. wanted him. In, and in 1954, in the midterm election period, his, he had two brothers, a liberal and a conservative. His conservative mm-hmm. brother, who was down in Texas, wrote to him and said, what kind of conservative are you? And he lays out, why haven't you done this? Why haven't you done that? And I, I'm not sure if you know about this letter. He wrote back to his brother. And he, by the way, what he wrote to his brother is exactly what he told his press secretary on a Sunday afternoon's walk. <laughs> he said, any party that messes with the rights of workers... Social Security he went right through the liberal agenda. Any party that does that will never be heard from this again. From will never yeah. be heard again in this country. Yeah, I I read that recently, and also yeah. of course his farewell address and his phrasing, his uh, coining the phrase military-industrial complex. Yeah. So yeah. all powerful, in all, Republican powerful. or not, Eisenhower, between being the supreme Allied commander during World War II and um, the military-industrial complex speech alone. Um, Great honor, yeah. great kudos to him. I yeah. can't thank you enough, Harvey. Um, I feel, like I said before, I feel we could talk for hours about many things. Uh, but I really appreciate your talking to me today. And um, I, what you have done for so many, and I, what I hope we did a little bit on this podcast today, was to awaken more curiosity, more understanding in people who might not have given Franklin Roosevelt all that uh, much thought. We need his spirit today. Uh, We need a genuine progressive vision. We need to become, as he said, uh, fairly radical for at least a generation. We need to push back against those who say now exactly what they said to him. Ah, you're a socialist, you're a communist, and uh, say, I welcome their hatred. Point out that it's just a bunch of propaganda. I do want to f- finish with one one little story that I'm sure you know. There was a great rift, of course, within the family, uh, the Roosevelt family. And uh, he had been turned down for some club membership in Harvard. And I was reading a story about how yeah. his aunts and uncles were saying, if only they had not turned him down that they saw that <laughs> as the root of his class anger um at the hoity-toity yeah, people because right. they said why why does he have so much upset with the hoity-toity people he's a roosevelt um yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna take advantage of my speaking to you and you can cut this out afterward if you wish okay in the and this is going to take us i said early on that i wanted to say something about bernie and all the, of this mm-hmm. okay so in 2015 and again in 2019, before each of those election years of 16 and 20, Bernie gave a speech first at Georgetown and then at George Washington University and made it a point of recovering and recalling FDR's Economic Bill of Rights. Okay, And using the, the phrase was, economic royalism. Yeah. The, the shame was that Bernie never really took it on the road. Okay, And this, to me, was the tragedy. 
when he stood on the cat, when he, and I know they pushed you out of those events <laughs> eventually, but when he stood with the smaller cohort of so-called democratic candidates and they would charge him with wanting to bankrupt America with Medicare for all, it was sad that he didn't know that he should have just called FDR into the room and reminded Americans of what another generation had accomplished in the midst of a crisis and that it was the greatest capital D Democratic president ever who had done that. That's the, that, was my, that remains my very biggest complaint about somebody who I've admired ever since the 1980s. But I just didn't want to add that um, recently I have, I've worked with Alan Minsky, who is an executive Alan. director of Progressive Democrats of America, and we have composed in hopes of reviving the idea, not letting it get away, a 21st century economic bill of rights, hoping that calling on progressive political figures, either in office or, or aspiring, to embrace it because the overwhelming majority of Americans want exactly what we talked about before. They want guaranteed health care. They want the ability to pursue education as far as their abilities can take them. They want to live in comfortable housing and I could go out. They want a job with a living wage. So anyhow, thanks if you cut it out, whatever. There's but no need to, to cut say. that out. Um, I, I love Bernie and I, um, you know, Bernie's a human being and what he's done for us so outweighs any mistakes we might find. And I Absolutely. know that you know that too. Uh, I think what you were talking about though in terms of an economic bill of rights was extremely important. And I have long thought uh, that whoever runs for president in 2024 with a progressive vision should make part of his or her agenda an economic bill of rights. So I thank you, Harvey, for articulating that the way you have and making it so clear. I'm sure I'm not the only person uh, who has taken note of that and realizes so. that that is well, the way we I hope need so, to but I'm thrilled that you have taken note of that. Oh, yeah, I took note. Much love to you, Harvey Kay. I hope that this is just uh, one of many times that we will have a chance, uh, perhaps privately as well as publicly, uh, to talk about such things as we talked about today. Uh, I will continue to listen to you. I will continue to read. Uh, and uh, I look forward to the next time. Thank, Thank you, you for so the invitation. Much. And just to assure you that I'm ready to talk anytime, you have my phone number. God bless you, honey. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, so that was my conversation with Harvey Kay. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. Remember, his book is called FDR on Democracy. Check out all of his books. He's, um, he's really something. And I want to close with a story, um, something that just happened to me yesterday. I had done an event at the MLK Memorial, and Lauren, who works with me, um, knew that I was doing this, conversa this conversation today. She knew that I'd been reading about FDR. And she pointed out that the FDR Memorial is just really a few uh, yards away from the MLK. It was a lovely night. And I said, sure, let's go over there. I had visited it once a few years ago, but hadn't been back since I've come to live in Washington, D.C. We were strolling through the memorial, and I was reading all these profound quotes from FDR, many of which we talked uh, about today with Harvey. And I was feeling the weight of what trouble we are in in our country today and how, you know, how much we need an FDR. And when I was about halfway through, strolling through the monument, I noticed that there was a group of young people. I think they were high school. They looked about high school age to me. Quite a few of them, 30, 35 kids. And there was a guide. 
And I don't know if the guide was their teacher, their American history teacher. I think he probably was. He could have been someone from the monument, but there was just more to it going on. I think he was probably their teacher. And at every stop along the way of the monument, because that's how it works, a quote of his, a statue, etc. The teacher was explaining to these students what was going on in America at the time, what was going on in Roosevelt's life, what this meant. He was teaching them, not just the words, not just the words inscribed in the stone, but they, he was making them come alive. He was, was doing what great teachers do. And I, was, I turned around to look at the young people, and I saw myself at their age. And, you know, some of them looked like, you know, not that interested, kind of bored, and then some of them were just mesmerized. I was looking at this one girl, and she was just mesmerized by everything he was saying. I walked for a while, you know, listening to him. It was so interesting, and, he, you know, this guy had it right. And when I left there, I was very moved. But I wasn't just moved by... Roosevelt, because for me recently, as I'm sure for many of us, it's almost painful to be moved by Roosevelt when you compare it to what's happening in America today and how we so need this kind of philosophy and politics, and it's not happening. When I walked out, though, I had hope for this country. But it wasn't just hope because of the words of Roosevelt that I had seen inscribed on the walls of the monument. I had hope because I saw those young people reading those words, being taught about those words, getting it, grokking it. I saw these words enter their hearts because of that man, a great teacher. And because of that, I walked out of there and thought, we're gonna be okay. Because generations that come after the great ones like Roosevelt, who understand what he did in his time, will be able to do in our time and in their time what generations before us did in theirs. Nothing helps that process like reading what those people said, what they were about, what they did, Roosevelt and others. This book, The Greatest Speeches and Writings of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt by Harvey Kay is such an example. And uh, I feel honored to have had him on the podcast today. And I assume that you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thanks so much.